Hello there, fans and friends, and welcome back to the Speaking Generally podcast with Stevie Boy Hussey and Georgie Boy Taylor. Hello, George. That's a strange one. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we're figuring out these intros after 50 episodes. <laughs> 50 episodes in, get the really intro sorted. Trying to get a foothold on those. Um, well, I am currently, George, uh, back at my parents' place because uh, lockdown sort of set in here in the UK and it sort of didn't make much sense for me to be in London at the moment. Um, still a lot of people wandering about outside there, but a lot of places shut and uh, I thought I'd come and get a bit cosy and hunkered. The uh, nights are getting darker uh, and uh, winter's drawing in. So, uh, so get home, get a kettle on, get curtains drawn, do it's very much, Yeah, it's very much that vibe. Heat, get the heating turned up uncomfortably hot. As you <laughs> like. um, uh, get under the covers as early as possible. Yeah, flick on the PlayStation, the books. Well, so I think we're going for a bit of a sort of hunker guide for this episode, maybe a few little cultural treats to dig into while while hunkering. Hunkering sounds a lot nicer than being locked down or quarantined, doesn't it? Makes it a bit more sort of digestible. <laughs> it does, yeah. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's a much cosier term. I think of this as the hunkerer's almanac. <laughs> 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 the... the Pitch Hunkerer's Guide to... <laughs> That's good. That's good stuff. Lockdown. That's great. Um, there we um, go. It's, I'm, I'm broadcasting at you from the US, Steve, and out the window, it's it's very autumnal today. It's, you know, cloudy, rainy, the leaves are bright orange and falling off the trees. But up until about three days ago, it was 27, 28 degrees. I was wearing shorts three days ago on the 10th of November. Ooh. I had shorts on. So the weather's been a bit strange for me to get my head around here, whereas all the sort of uh, broadcasts I'm getting from the UK tell me that the nights really have drawn in and it's while lockdown is in place again. I think that's on the agenda for the US, but it's not quite here yet. So, yeah, it seemed like a, a good time to get get settled. And how do you feel when you're your little, you know, in your place in New Jersey? Do you feel comfortable? Is it is it what you imagined? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's obviously a bit strange because we're in a very small university town that currently doesn't have any students in it. So that, yeah, it makes the place probably feel a bit smaller because um, certain venues have stayed closed because they're not going to do the business they would and things like that. All the dining that's available to us is limited to 25% capacity, which is it's really nice to see that they've been able to stay open, but it's not the, the normal impression you would get of the place. And I think from what I've heard compared to other, particularly what we're at one of the Ivy League universities, we're in Princeton and a lot of the others I understand have more of a sort of town vibe where the students hang out in the town and there's a bit more of a buzz and an atmosphere. Whereas in Princeton, rather than like the fraternity sorority setup, they have, I think they're called eating clubs, dining clubs, I think eating clubs that are like, the equivalent of their frat houses and they all run along one big main street up to the east I think of the campus maybe the west up up to one side of the campus so when students are here all the buzz and energy is kind of there they don't really get involved in the town as much as they would at other universities so I think where we're at doesn't have quite the same like pervasive university spirit if you're not actually involved in the university and because they're not here at all it's it's just a super quiet atmosphere at the moment so obviously the expectations that we have we had versus the reality we're seeing is quite different but um yeah it's it's been nice to see that the the kind of town proper has been able to keep its head above water princeton's very affluent place so it's it's been fortunate in that sense but there certainly is still an atmosphere and things going on but a different one to the the one i think we both expected maybe that will change when the weather gets better and students are able to come back but we will take it as it comes i will just say george as you've been speaking i notice you're brandishing your wedding ring i don't feel like i've seen brandishing that on you (laughs) We don't do video chat for these usually, so I'm just just seeing it on your on your hand. It's sort of 
gives me a warm feeling so, for some reason. Sort of like. Squeezed onto my finger. I don't think that thing could come off if I wanted to get it off now. Yeah. George, George has very stubby hands. Um, stubby? I imagine, that, I imagine that is really nestled in there. That is that is not going anywhere. It's big, um, it is big Steve. I don't know anything about the jewellery sizing, but as when I got it, as far as I can tell, they do the ring sizes up the letters of the alphabet, and I was like X, Y, or Z. So right. Right, up, right up in the kind of meaty Prince Charles end of the spectrum. Yours will be double the price of the ladies, sir. Uh, yeah, and triple the size. <laughs> yeah. I um, How, you know, I guess Elizabeth is hunkered in with you, you and your 50 books that you brought to the US. Is, uh, you know, is she finding that all right? <laughs> yeah, she, it's, the difficulty we've had is that she's got an office to work in or we expected she'd be able to go and work in her office but the COVID restrictions have meant that she hasn't so we're juggling that thing of, you know, we've got one bedroom apartment, two people working from home which I think is a struggle that lots of people are having at the moment so, you know, doing the, doing our podcast we have to time it so that she's on calls at different times she's on lots of work calls and the US, yeah. I'm guessing it's probably quite a universal thing in the university setup. There are a lot of uh, like workshops and seminars and talking through papers and things like that. So there are lots of group calls for her to be on that I imagine have just replaced the water, you know, the water cooler moment where you go, oh, I'm working on this paper. Oh, that's interesting. I'll help you out. That's organically not happening at the moment. So they've done it. It seems like quite a good job of getting them on lots of calls together. But from a selfish point of view, Steve, it makes it very hard for me to do my own stuff. So, uh, yeah, you know. around the water cooler talking about bloody, yeah. you know, uh, what's that one? The Queen's Gambit talking about, talking about, she has, watching, she has been watching that actually. Um, uh, I, I watched one episode. That's pretty good. Um, I was uh, going to say, um, yeah, actually, that that I, there was a um, there was an article recently on the sort of roommate, you know, the age of the roommate, which which doesn't. That's seem what that we call good. each other now. We're married. Just a couple of roommates. <laughs> Roomies. Uh, they were they were talking about one of those, uh, you know, the fact that you know millennials may have roommates for some time going into their adulthood, um, but obviously with the added thing of lots of people working from home now, it makes for a quite an interesting uh, domestic setup people having to deal with that I mean when you and I lived together there were three of us you and you know the two of us and we had two separate roommates at, at different times but all of us the four of us collectively all worked from home we did but that was not it well it's a it's a strain on the wi-fi and that was sort of pre-COVID before there were tons of Zoom calls and Skype calls to be done. But I suppose you've, you've always been doing that because you, you work with your brother who's in a different country. I work with people in different countries and stuff. So it, it is difficult. It, it definitely puts, puts an onus on being able to have a good Wi-Fi connection. Honestly, Steve, one of the big bonuses of COVID has been that Netflix downgraded the streaming quality of all their footage because... I can't tell by looking at it, but it makes it much more streamable. Before they were broadcasting really? it at like a much higher bit rate, yeah, or bit rate like quality frame rate. And is that world round? I think so. Yeah, there was a there was a lot of chat about it happening. They like downgraded it because people were just struggling to stream stuff. But I've I've noticed that my my broadcasting abilities have been much better since that happened. So, That's yeah, all for that. No, I, I, I can't say I've noticed, and I'm usually a bit of a stickler for noticing if TV looks a bit crappy. But, but I think yeah. they probably broke, or they probably stream it at such a high rate that it would only work if you've got, you know, the best TV. And if you're watching it on a yeah, laptop yeah. or something, it doesn't really matter, So or on a phone. So, yeah, I, I'm sure that's still the case now. That's been a, a big win for me, for sure. Take that, take that 4K jerks. <laughs> Trying to get the next best TV all the time. Um, Don't have well, a TV here, Steve. Don't have one. Probably will never get one. Oh, here we go. One of those. He's one of those guys. Are we? <laughs> just, just watch on my laptop. That's the difference. That Still is what we it. did. That is what we did in London when we all lived together. I, I've been in a place in London now with a TV. I've, I've got to say now, I, I think I would have to have a TV in there. Just, I like the. I like the demarcation between me on my laptop and me on the TV. I like I that like... too. I think the issue here is we don't have 
anywhere because we've had to make an extra desk for someone to work and things. If we put a TV in, it would sort of dominate the room. There's not really space for yeah. it. Um, yeah. Um, and it's, it's easy like... for it. Once the TV's on, it sort of takes over. It does. It does. That's why you, you kind of uh, have to... There are associates, particularly in your parents' house, if the TV's on. Oh, yes. That's I can hear it from over in Princeton. And, on, and, and they have it up very loud as well. So it's like... <laughs> loud volume and on the lot um so double whammy there yeah I, I i now like to turn it on put the show on and then turn it off and yeah it, uh, it's more like it. a monitor right rather than for the broadcast content itself it's just better to have a separate screen yeah if i was going to be one of those parents who was funny about their kids screen time and i don't have children so i i don't know yet how i'll be on that but I do think that's where, I, I mean, I was allowed to just surf and channel skip and just, you know, mindlessly switch between things a lot. It's not I done think you I'm, any harm, is it? Not done me any harm. Um, yeah, I think I may feel like I'd want them to actually, like, watch something, sit and choose to watch something rather than just mindlessly surf through it. But but maybe, you know, then again, parents just find it an easy. I, I've seen my cousin with her baby. And Stick him on he the does just get she she sticks Thomas the Tank Engine YouTube videos on and he just watches the same ones over and over again and I do see like it just keeps him really quiet for a long time so I'm like that does make sense I see why parents do it now yeah. um, well let's see what PhD he writes and we'll see how that you know <laughs> if it works for him control case um, speaking of uh, hunkering George uh, I've had a couple of WhatsApp pictures from you of um Bags of American candy. <laughs> well, yes, Steve. The day after Halloween is the best day in America. The day after, where they discount everything. Right. All the old, all the old going off. Oh, it's great. Fill my boots. None of the stuff in America can go off. It's all been treated so much. It's going to last yeah, forever. Like nuclear, nuclear. Yeah, when the they Twinkie. say Twinkie, survive a Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, they put. I bought a couple of Twinkies the other day just to really, you know, get get amongst it and they did have a best before date on it but it seemed like it was just it was almost ironic on there they'd sort of done it as a bit of a joke right i always think that with um that candy corn stuff it feels so artificial and fake you just think that that could sit in your cupboard forever in a bag and it'd be fine in 2030 yeah pack of twizzlers the other day blasting through a pack of twizzlers what's a twizzler made of they have the problem I have with Twizzlers, they have very little flavor. Mm, they're built of all things, they're built as a low calorie snack, like a health yeah, food. Here, a Twizzler here is a health food. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do feel the definition like the definition of empty calories to me. It's just a chewy, slightly cherry thing, and you okay. can just feel like my gut's not going to process that very well. It's that's, just a distraction, I suppose. It's like it's better to nibble on that than it is to nibble on a donut. You know, if you need, right. it's like someone who used to smoke and they just have a pencil in their hand all the time. It feels like that's what a Twizzler's for. Yeah, you're supposed to substitute to like a carrot, not a Twizzler. But, but I get <laughs> Depends where you're coming from, doesn't it, I suppose. Are there any ones you've tried that are new to you or are these sort of um, favourites? We haven't gone completely mental. On your recommendation, Steve, I bought myself a box of Whoppers, which you build as the American version of the Malteser, and I have to say I was very disappointed. I See, I said the Whoppers, I like that they're more malty than a Malteser, but the chocolate's not as good, which is mm. kind of true of all, all American chocolate is not as good as English chocolate. Yeah, they are part of the Hershey empire, and Hershey's chocolate is fairly desperate, but it's also, they're too hard and too crunchy. The, the Malteser in the UK was billed as a sort of lightweight treat where in the advertising for them, it was a woman lying on her back and blowing the Malteser up in the air yeah. and hovering it above her to show how light they were. You try doing that with a Whopper, you're going to get a black eye. Like why, why also, I don't know if this is all chocolate, but it feels like Maltesers are always sold extremely gendered towards women. Definitely, yeah. It feels like the, the adverts were so like fixed as like, this is a woman's snack, and I don't know why. I don't know why they... Maybe that is it. the lightness. I don't know, the lightness is 
buys in, like, pays into that somehow. I'm not sure, but the Whopper is definitely on the like the blo- <laughs> the Whopper is yeah. the blokey malt treat the, for sure. The name is not the name is not like a very <laughs> dainty thing to be. Like, I have a box of Whoppers. <laughs> That's um, very true. As well, like milk milk duds. You know, I'm a big fan of. Mm. And they're like kind of break your. They're like very chewy, not good for your teeth, but. In a cinema, in an American movie theatre with those, that is a real treat for me because you, you don't get milk duds in the UK. No. We've had a couple of boxes of Mike and Ike's. Mike they're and like Ike? A, like a jelly bean, a smaller jelly bean. They're, they're interesting. Je- I would say the original jelly bean is better. Um, oh, I'm a big fan of 100 grand. That's been quite a discovery for me. I haven't. I don't think I've even tried that one. I've always seen it, but it, it looks like one of those nineteen forties bars. That I don't oh, know. it's ex- it's really good. I, f- I feel like the American mo for candy here is just stick, or particularly for chocolate bar, stick some peanuts in it. They just slap peanut and everything. Yeah, and I feel yeah. like the hundred grand is the best executed candy bar with peanuts. Um, Did you know that a lot of the classic candies debuted at Chicago World's Fair? I didn't, but I'm pleased to hear it. In that book, The Devil in the White City, they talk about the Chicago's World's Fair and they'd show all the newest inventions and innovations. It was like a testament to sort of American innovation at the time. And uh, things like Wrigley's gum was like a novel Mm. thing, like Juicy Fruit and uh, Pab's Blue Ribbon won the Blue Ribbon Prize. That was a beer, right, right. Pab's Blue Ribbon. So lots of like these sort of like old classic things some of them debuted uh, as these like new brand new like you know treat they probably said it was good for you at the time uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> the thought, Boy, help um yeah so well that's good i'm glad you've embraced the halloween tradition we're getting there there's definitely um we've not had access to too many places selling candy to be honest there aren't a ton of shops in Princeton so once uh, once we've got the means to get further afield once I have a car then yeah we'll be going on some gluttonous trips for if, sure if anyone uh, wants to see a fun little sugary treat go and watch a, there's a funny video of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates going to this big candy shop uh, I think it's called Sweet Nostalgia with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and it's because uh, Warren Buffett has the diet of a five year old and uh <laughs> He j- they just walk around a candy shop together and Buffett's talking about the things he likes. Uh, it's a good Great. one to go and watch. Very nice. Um, so you were thinking about books or media or films to hunker down with. Makes a change, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a new one. Um, <laughs> have, uh, have, you, have you been thinking about particular films that would be, that represent that or that would be good to actually you know, good for this scenario. I've, I've stuck, ex- stuck, I stuck, ex- God, constantly, Jesus, I've lost it, Steve. I don't know how to even get my words out, which isn't helpful for a podcast. I've operated exclusively with books, Steve. I don't have any films for you, but um, they're just books I thought would be good to hunker with. You know, they're not about hunkering. I don't think that'd be a particularly enjoyable read, would it? And then she got her duvet. Um, let's just do the rest of the podcast listing puns on like you know kafka's the hunker artist <laughs> oh dear just, just um, a lot of puns um sorry go on um I've, I've just got a lot of books that i thought would be nice to get settled with you know spend a day under the duvet stay nice and warm bit of, bit of you know action bit of adventure bit of everything most of them are quite meaty titles a few of them venture outside but you don't have to because you can just stick stick in and stick the book on. What did you do? You've, like, you've got yourself some films, have you? Yeah, I got myself... The films are sort of feel more based on what I like to get under the covers and watch on a sort of cold day. Uh, I got a couple of books, but yeah, we can... Well, that's nice. We've mixed it up, so... Well, let's go tip for tap, shall we? Shall I, uh, shall I start okay. with one? Yeah, go for it. Steve, I'm going to start with one that potentially we've mentioned before. It's, it's a bit of a classic. It's certainly a kind of millennial classic, as in people of the millennial age will look back at it fondly and like it. And it's a real one to get, get hunkered with. A lot of mystique, a lot of drama. It's Donna Tartt's The Secret History. 
kind of murder oh. mystery set on a university campus. It's dark, it's brooding, it's exciting. Um, it's quite hefty. Uh, had a very famous jacket, cover jacket, designed by Chip Kidd with a sort of acetate uh, sheet over the book. Um, looks lovely. It's it's a great thing and it's a great novel. It's, uh, it's a real one to get stuck in. Gives away what happens on page one of the book and then it kind of unravels itself as to how they got there. So it comes about a murder, murder mystery in a slightly different way, but very, very well done, very exciting. Definitely her best book much better than The Goldfinch, which somehow won the Pulitzer Prize. But uh, that, we've ranted about that on a previous podcast, I think. But The Secret History by Donna Tartt. I'm yet to breach Tartt's work, but I'm, <laughs> I've been very... <laughs> I, I've heard about it many times, and uh, it's probably time I took one on. But that's good, because I would have would have gone for The Goldfinch instinctively, of having heard about it. But Yeah, I'll, this uh, to me, The Goldfinch felt like a sort of adult... Harry Potter, you know, it felt like the Order of the Phoenix written for, you know, the 30-year-olds. But this right. this has got a, a kind of dark, yeah, sort of surface to it. But it, it's, it's really good. She's a contemporary of Brett Easton Ellis as well. I think their characters actually overlap in a couple of novels wow. sort of superficially, but they share, they share a world for sure. If you've read The Rules of Attraction, there's a lot of overlap with this, but a real, real one to sink your teeth into yeah, I know. I think he's praised her before as a uh, yeah. So I, I, but I didn't know they were like so contemporary of each other. Um, nice one. Has there been a film made of that? I don't know. The Goldfinch film was ill received. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's a film of the Secret History. If there is, it's low key. I know there's a film of the Rules of Attraction, which is also fairly low key, late eighties number. But no, I'm not sure if this has been filmed, but seek out the novel okay and it's realist is it it's not a like genre it's a murder mystery set on a university campus right interesting um all right lovely well i'll uh i'll give you a lovely film change gears and this is i mean an out an out comedy um but with some grisliness and it's sort of my favorite cozy up film which is Shaun of the Dead um, it's it's a British classic I'm sure a lot of people have seen it it's a rom-zom-com romantic zombie comedy uh, with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost the kind of first big film collaboration they did after they did the TV series Spaced with Edgar Wright and uh, yeah I, I think it's well it's a film about everything's going to shit outside and they want to find a way to go and get hunkered in the pub. And that's the whole, that's the whole vibe of the film is we can solve this. It's not really even a solution. They're just like, we've got to find a way to go and get hunkered in the pub for all, wait for all this to blow over. And uh, many people have employed the meme from that line uh, in the wake of COVID have said like, let's get to the Winchester. Um, Yeah. So uh, I feel it's an appropriate film for uh, Wanting to just be cosy with your mates during the apocalypse. Very good choice. Um, yeah, really enjoyable. Well worth revisiting. I think I've seen it maybe once. I've only seen it once or twice. So it's probably worth dipping back into for sure. Lovely. Yeah. I think it's one of the most imminently watchable films from the first moment you can kind of put on and you're like, oh, okay, I'll watch this. It's- Do you think it translates well to an American audience? I know a lot of Americans who rate it very highly, who I know who like film. Um, so it definitely has... It's very English a, suburbs, isn't it? Yeah, and like, I, I, it is. I think it's just because it's very fast-paced, the jokes are good, it's snappy, and it kind of has an American feel to the direction. I think Quentin Tarantino was a very big fan when it came out. He uh, mm. listed it as one of his favourite films since he started making films. Uh, where he did a list of them and one of them was Shaun of the Dead. Nice, very good. Um, well, change of pace then, Steve, away from that to uh, The Strangest Child by Alan Hollinghurst. Uh, mm. Fantastic novel. I think it was the first of the Hollinghurst books that I read. Um, it's another kind of weighty tome. A um, bit more serious, sort of indulgent prose, really beautifully written. 
sort of broadly a kind of if you're into Downton Abbey you'd be into this but that's doing him a real disservice for sure it's about a poet and the repercussions of his work over maybe a hundred year period the novel opens in the you know just slightly pre-first world war and then kind of echoes through the generations that follow from the main characters involved then I think it's broken into maybe five or six different chunks his novels almost exclusively deal with kind of like homosexual relationships but this one is uh I don't know more literary than some of his other work in that the premise revolves around a poet and is in invested in a book of poetry or some work that he's done and how the actual written work that he's done echoes through the generations as much as the interpersonal relationships do. Um, maybe the great prose stylist, English novelist, I would say, not writing in English, but English of origin, probably the best prose stylist. Um, all of his work is absolutely fantastic. This one feels, this is not his most recent, the one before, and it felt to me like the kind of culmination of all the things he pointed towards doing in his earlier books. Some of his earlier books are more explicit or more comic. He won the Booker Prize for um, maybe his fourth novel, but this, I don't know, this felt a little bit mature, a bit more mature, uh, but it's it's got the real country house vibe and just a, it's got a kind of earthy outdoorsness to it as much as it does an indoor relationship driven kind of strike stripe through it. So yeah, another one to really get, get read kind of autumnal, get, get read under the covers and kind of look outside and picture a world going on out there. But um, yeah, love it. I thought it was fabulous. The Stranger's Child by Alan Hollinghurst. Yeah. I, uh, I think I've only read a bit of Hollinghurst, but I loved what I read. And I feel he's one of those people who is highly praised, but probably, probably under read, right? Considering yeah, so. how, how good he's, his prose and his writing is. And probably not very, I mean, he's obviously done well, but probably doesn't sell as much overseas in the States. Um, yeah, potentially. I think he might get lumped in as, you know, like a quote unquote, like gay novelist. And it's, all of his novels tend to, you know, revolve around gay relationships because that's kind of the world that he is a part of himself, I suppose. But as his books have gone on, that feels slightly secondary, whereas earlier on, his earlier work is kind of a bit more explicit in the way that it addresses that, whereas now it just happens to be that the relationships are two guys or whatever. So it's, and this one, because it, it kind of revolves around a period of time yeah, it revolves through a kind of historical period. There's a bit more um, sort of consideration of how relationships could be more open or, or publicly displayed and how that's presented in like literary contexts and things. So there's a, there's a lot going on with this one. I think it's just fantastic, yeah. Love his work. Um, he has a few, like, uh, tells in his work where if you read a page you just know it's Alan Hollinghurst instantly he uses a few phrases often and there's a kind of wry slow like knowing wink to some of the things he does where when I'm having read all of his books you could go back and almost play like Alan Hollinghurst bingo where you go oh that's right. where he, he said this or he did this but I think that that almost adds to it and uh, yeah he's great love love his stuff highly recommended do you think it's uh, when when an author or an artist becomes really associated with with tropes specific to them? Do you think that do you think that's just okay that they are so recognisable? Like, oh, if you have a Woody Allen film, you might have these five things in it. Do you think that's like uh, a criticism, or do you think it, it's just that some people are very that they have a note they play really well? And so, that's a good question because. You, on one hand, you could say, oh, boring, more of the same, but I also I wouldn't want to see Woody Allen. Well, maybe I would want to see Woody Allen direct like a World War II, you know, blockbuster, but really it's not his wheelhouse. And I think when someone knows what they're good at, you kind of go back to that well because you want to see more of the same. And it's my prerogative whether I, there's 50 Woody Allen films or if I don't want to watch all of them, I don't have to. So it's not like you're you're forced to revisit them. It's your prerogative to do so. And if you want more of the same, then that's great. Hollinghurst not written that much stuff, maybe seven novels. It's not a huge amount. And uh, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think um, 
it would be strange for him to write a kind of Brett Easton Ellis, you know, like jaded drug LA story. So conversely, yeah, why would other writers do different? So yeah, I, I don't think that's a problem at all. No, no, I just find it interesting how some authors do, like they, yeah, they just know the note they're going to hit and they have certain tropes they revisit uh, mm. time and again. But um, uh, one that I wanted to, if we're on sort of, seems to be having a theme of sort of British, maybe something about <laughs> something about uh, the nature of Britain lends itself well to hunkering in. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh I want to plumb for one that you read recently, George, um, which is an underread George Orwell novel, uh, mm. Keep the Aspidistra Flying. Because um, it's, I don't know if it vibes well, oh, it kind of vibes well with what we're talking about. It's kind of like a certain view of Orwell's view of London is like, there's a lot of like, you know, it's quite grey and, and can be bleak at times and a struggle, but there's kind of a lot in it about, you know, it's a, it's it's someone struggling with trying to be significant, uh, trying to avoid the trappings of a bourgeois sort of middle class life. Uh, he's trying to be a he's a minor, well, not a minor, even a negligible poet uh, who's trying to sort of uh, forge a literary career working in a bookshop. And it's kind of him, you know, his his kind of little attempts to. Uh, well, what would you say? Be someone? Be someone yeah. of significant? He uh, while, struggles while with also, Yeah, while also setting a lot of very strict rules on himself. Like, he puts these very difficult constraints on himself and then wonders why he can't, you know, go beyond the limitations he's he's facing. Yeah. Whereas, I suppose, yeah. in this circumstance we're all in now, the, the rules have been imposed upon us kind of thing. But um, it's not the time, yeah. almost, to try and strive beyond what you want to do because you're probably not going to be able to but there's a freedom in that whereas he he's sort of the opposite right he's imposed the restrictions and is limiting himself in a way that he maybe shouldn't have to yeah and he uh he has all kinds of self-sabotaging things when he finally like gets a little bit of money and just you see the sort of the embarrassing ways you like self-sabotage by being grandiose and self-important yeah. and uh, yeah i something about the these like yeah, there's something about uh, London, the greyness of England, certain things like sort of like the spy who came in from the cold, John le Carre, those things sort of lend themselves well to being indoors and being cosy, I think, because English people have spent a lot of time trying to get cosy from the weather. Yeah. I think there's something to that. Yeah. Um, oh. Which one shall I plump for from my list, Steve? I'm going to plump for The Overstory by Richard Powers, another large novel, uh, one that Pulitzer Prize maybe a couple of years ago, potentially have already discussed it on this podcast. It's the novel in which the main characters are trees, not in a kind of Lord of the Ringsy way, but in a way that um, they kind of stand as symbols for significant elements or parts of the human characters' lives, so the the fruit tree that was in the garden where the kid grew up or the tree that the activist chains themselves to. They're the kinds of totem totems that the, the plot revolves around and he ties an amazing web together by linking all these strands, almost, you know, the kind of symbolism of roots and things, bringing them all together. But it's fantastically good novel, brilliantly researched, super technically technically well done um yeah really deserving of the prizes it won and the the praise it received and it's just a kind of a great novel about the outdoors but also a very interior novel about the kind of individual lives of each of the characters to the point that one of them creates a kind of virtual reality world and uses that as a form of escapism and um yeah it's it's beautifully done really gripping i I've heard a few people struggled with it, but other people have been completely like enamored and I've blasted through it in four or five sittings. It's maybe 600 pages, but yeah, if, if it grips you early on, which I feel like it should, if you can, you know, give it a Saturday to sit down and read with, it's fantastic. One of the best books I've read this year. Um, yeah. One, one to get under the covers with the overstory. What's that overstory? The overstory by Richard Powers. Okay. Um, Wow, that's great. That's actually one I don't not even in, been on my radar. So I will uh, 
yeah, I'll pop that on. Um, lovely. Um, well, I'll go for another movie then. Um, which one I go for? Um, okay, so I'll go for a fairly new one. Um, now we've we've obviously discussed before. At times, you you you've given you've given anime films a good go, George. At times, you find a, you struggle with them. At times, some you've liked. Um, but I think it's fair to say you find it a mixed bag as a genre. Sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, this one is by the. Uh, so it's the I, I saw it at the beginning it's kind of has poignancy for me now because i literally saw it at the beginning of this year in la with my brother and cousin just as we were talking and going oh this this uh coronavirus thing they've got in uh china seems to be a little bit troubling do you think we should go to japan in february and like oh i think we'll be all right but we'll keep an eye on it that was those words were sort of said then commentators curse yeah yeah, and uh, we did go to Japan, and then ended up coming back to lockdowns all over the world. So it was a, uh, it was sort of the moment before the world changed, just on the precipice of it. And the film is about it's called Weathering with You, and it is by the guy who did who directed Your Name, which was kind of this huge smash hit in Japan. We've talked about it before. It was uh, one of the biggest selling anime films of all time, and uh, this one is literally about a rain that won't stop outside and it's raining all the time and you know people are not sure why it won't stop raining and they find this girl who can sort of temporarily bring the sun and it's kind of like you know it's like a coming of age adventure and like a boy goes to Tokyo uh, for the first time and sort of you know lots of it is metaphorical for a lot of different parts of growing up and the world and you know dealing with the problems of the world but yeah, it's it's literally a lot of a lot of hunkering down, and the rain just won't stop and stop for the whole film. And uh, so, yeah, they're they're weathering together. So it's weathering. Was it successful in the way that his previous film was? Uh, definitely financially, it was successful. I don't know. Like your name is one of the things where it's like he's probably not going to top it finance. He's not going to top that financially sure. or an impact. But uh, but yes, it did very. well well in japan did it get a cinema uh, release in the uk well what it no what it got is um it got releases obviously in japan it was around the world in these kind of they do these special like uh screenings where they do uh, with a film company it's like oh we're going to show it on wednesdays and fridays for the next month or whatever and you kind of pre-book so that's what we did in LA. And obviously it's easier to see a lot of different films in LA because they're always showing things in mm. lots of theaters. And uh, yeah, it was really nice though. It's just like a few of us in the cinema and uh, yeah, getting through, getting through the rain. So uh, I think it's only just come up on Amazon prime in the last couple of weeks. So you can go and rent it for the first time now. Lovely. I'll, uh, I'll, maybe I'll give that one a go. I didn't love your name. I'm kind of surprised that's not the most successful Japanese film ever. But um, uh, for like for like anime, I think for pure financial takings, I think it was the most successful. One yeah, that thing kind of surprised me. It's obviously well done, but um, yeah, I'll try this, this one. We'll see if we're right. This one, this one may have the tropes that frustrate you in the same way. I think you lean a bit more towards the Miyazaki ones, like Spirited Away, and some of the. Uh, maybe the more no I mean the last Miyazaki one I watched I just thought this is insufferable so yeah maybe it's just not quite for me but um, in the mood and climate that we're in I think maybe now could be the time for some sort of whimsical Japanese escapism it's colourful it's whimsical give it give it a little Steve do any of the characters shout each other's names out repeatedly at high volume well yes they do (laughs) (laughs) In a melodramatic way, you yes, yes, they, there are yeah. several periods where people just shout the other person's name. Okay, That's all right. George's, George's version of anime is people shout each other's name. They do. Uh, yeah, it's true. It's and like to me, you know, there's that episode of The Simpsons where Sideshow Bob chases them onto the houseboat, and they were like thirty seconds short with the runtime for the episode, so they just had the drawing of him treading on the rake over and over again. Oh, yeah. I feel like with the anime, they're like, we need to get this up to eighty-five minutes. Just have a shout, you know, Akira, over and over again. 
Yeah, there's definitely bits where some animes are adapted from comics and you can feel that they are trying to make it work for episodes. Like, this mm. has to be a 25-minute show and we're going to go draw these scenes Yeah. Up. No, that, that does sound like a, a very personal one to be watching now. It's nice that that's just come out as well. So, yeah, maybe I will. I'll give that a go and see, uh, see if I can keep my prejudices at bay. Um, Steve, a novel for you, a big one, and one that is described on the back as an incandescent sizzler, a day glow dickens. I mean, if that's not what we're all after at the moment, I don't know what is. It's bonfire. So you read my... Oh, right, there you go. Go on. Sorry, I was going to make a joke that you... uh, Never mind, carry on. (laughs) It's the novel (laughs) Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe, which maybe now is sort of pigeonholed as a bit of an 80s dinosaur of a novel, Um, you know, a relic of a a previous time kind of thing. But um, it's absolutely magnificent. I read it recently. I read it here because I'd just been into New York and it felt like a sort of archetype Manhattan novel to read, but it's it's magnificent. It's a big book. It broadly is about a kind of waspy, privileged, like, bond trader who gets involved in a hit-and-run accident in the Bronx, and it's about the fallout of that, but it captures all aspects of the sort of different strata in New York. It's super well-drawn, really kind of captures the zeitgeist of 80s greed and we've talked about before how much that kind of 80s nostalgia exists and sort of transitioning into 90s nostalgia now but it, revisiting it with the kind of lens that we have now is really interesting it's funny really well drawn page turningly interesting is sort of cringe inducing stress inducing anxiety inducing but also really yeah really funny um the kind of urban equivalent of the others I've cited so far. If you want a novel that captures the buzz of a city, potentially a city that you're not able to visit for a while. So with New York, with what's going on at the moment, it just, yeah, it, it ticks all the boxes. I gave it a 10 out of 10, Steve, in my, my fairly sort of biased chart of things I've enjoyed. I loved it. And I imagine most others would love it too. Um, wow. That's, that's a really interesting one because I, some for some reason i feel like that novel uh has sort of lost some cachet i don't mm. know why but it maybe it is associated it's quite big isn't it it's quite maybe people see it as uh an old-fashioned novel yeah well so it's old-fashioned in the sense that it is a bit like a dickens novel but i i had that too i've had it on my shelf for ages and sort of lost all interest but it's super vibrant super energetic um yeah, it's, it's magnificent. It's one of those that you think I should have read that much sooner. I don't know why I put it off. If you like American fiction, you you will enjoy this novel. Wonderful. Um, shall I do one more movie? Please. All right, we'll do one more movie. Um, just deciding what I'm going to choose here. Um, I'm going to go for something that's going to lift people's spirits george uh i did mention weathering with you and how it's constantly raining in the film uh so what about a film with sunshine in the title george (laughs) i refer refer, of course not to the danny boyle film sci-fi thriller sunshine but to uh the sort of noughties modern comedy classic little miss sunshine oh lovely um i think if people have Probably a lot of people of a certain point didn't miss this film, but I imagine there's lots who now haven't seen it, and it's well worth going back. If you want something that, in in a non-schlocky way, is a genuinely feel-good uh, comedy with a sort of acerbic edge, uh, and it's kind of got, you know, it's got some darkness. It's got lots of darkness, but ultimately it's, quite, it's a very uplifting sort of family comedy. Um it's well worth your time watching and it's uh, it's sort of a little road trip it's like not high stakes it's a little road trip to a beauty pageant called little miss sunshine with a, a dysfunctional family uh, who all have their own problems with failure and you know all these like every each one of them sort of has their own thing they're sort of striving for and struggling with um and steve carell is depressed and you know has been suicidal and the dad is struggling to get this self-help book published. And it's kind of these different characters, but it's a a genuinely rich array of characters where each member of the family 
is actually lovable in their own way. They're realistically dysfunctional, um, but they sort of stick together. Um, it's just one of those ones that you could sit with some friends and put on and have a have a good old time. Um, but it's not it's not a schlocky. It's not a schlocky, uh, uplifting comedy. No, I, I only saw it fairly recently, maybe 18 months, ago, 18 months ago or so, and had been put off by thinking it would be a bit of a schlock fest or, yeah, it something about or it didn't it, look... It looks it maybe looks a bit or indie, something. A bit, it maybe looks like a bit of an indie try-hard film or yeah, something. Yeah, a bit twee maybe, the way it comes across, but it isn't. It's, it's really good, really earnest, really funny, Um relatable in a weird way because those characters were quite strange but yeah this sort of individual striving comes across great cast Paul Dano's in it I think as well very yeah Reckoner, like Steve Carell first time a lot of I saw Paul Dano mm. Alan Alder is Alan Alder in it Alan, Alan Alder yeah, yeah yeah really good oh, cast no, sorry not is, no Alan Alder's the other one who's in the Woody Allen films he's called isn't he called uh, another old guy He's he's Alan something. Well, as we do that, just busy yourselves. Oh, Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin, Alan Arkin. that's it. Close enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, really good. Great pick. Um. So there you go. Sun and the rain. <laughs> My banal banal take on that pairing. Um. Do you do you want to do any more, or have you? I'll plug, I'll plug one more novel, Steve, one that I read a long time ago and can't really talk about with um, huge sort of accuracy other than to say it's absolutely excellent and to me maybe embodies the kind of book that you should be getting under the covers with. Um, yeah, yeah, lovely. It's A.S. Byatt's Possession, another Booker Prize winner, I think, from the early 90s, maybe the late 80s, early 90s, I think. Um Fantastic, absolutely fabulous kind of gothic Victorian literary quest almost. It's about a pair of academics who are pursuing, uh, well, they're undertaking research about a, a pair of Victorian writers and in their investigations into the work that they're sort of researching, they find things about it contemporary world going on as well and it's a yeah the way the kind of investigations into literature bring about human relations but written like a kind of gothic victorian novel the the um the prose and the poetry that she creates for her fictitious victorian poet are also brilliantly done it's kind of yeah it feels like she's working with original sources but it's all sort of fictional um it's a real like literary page turner about literature um yeah really gripping really thrilling really good fun not light-hearted but um you know there's not a load of sort of grisly murder it's it's a very sort of palatable book um your grandmother would love it as much as anyone else kind of thing but um right. yeah really really excellent high high quality well-written literature with a sort of thrilling love of books at the heart of it and uh yeah maybe that's the kind of the kind of thing we will need to you know, get cosy with by the fire at the moment, for sure. Um, that's wonderful. Well, um, that's brand new to me, so I'll add that. Um, well, that's quite a list. I will... Uh, Should get, I'll you, just get you through to New Year, shouldn't it? That'll get me through, yeah. I've already got a couple of them, so I can pluck them off the shelf. I actually have an intimidating amount that I want to get through, sort of reach my reading goals. Uh, I've done pretty well. I've done well this year, actually, uh, considering, but... There's just a few more I want to knock off, um, hopefully. Have, um, have you found it, you know, have you found it more or less easy to read in these times? Mm. It's been a fairly hectic sort of summer for me, so that kind of derailed my initial intentions, I suppose. I got sidetracked with other things going on. But in general, I've been able to maintain my my reading, I guess. But like we've said before, you and I you work from home kind of to your own routine and time. We've been doing that for a while, so it's not too much of a culture shock. Whereas if you're coming from, oh, I'd normally read on my commute or something, finding the time might be more difficult. So adapting in that sense hasn't been too hard. It's just been juggling it with other things that have cropped up this year that has, has slowed me down a little bit. 
Yeah, I know you, like me, George, track your reading, and I, I would urge anyone, if you, you know, if you love it and take it seriously, there's nothing like I, I've done it for the last few years now, and having the full, actual written list of everything I read, a, it's very uh, heartening and helpful to because it can all blur together and you sort of forget the individual books like what what did I actually read in 2019 and 2018 and it's good for when you recommend people things when you want to give gifts when you want to remember what your favorites were but I've tracked now since about I don't know five years ago and it uh five or six years ago now and it yeah, it just kind of compounds on itself the benefit of having that list. So I, I do urge you to do it. And also it helps you up your rate later to be like, oh, I managed to do that many th- this year and it wasn't that hard. I could maybe, you know, get 10 more out or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know about you, George. I just find the tracking is a really, really good part. It's like like brushing my teeth now. I just do it. But it's kind of a really beneficial part of my life is tracking my reading and watching. 100% I've been doing it since I think I've, my spreadsheet goes back to 2007 Steve so you know pretty wild wild undergrad period that I was having as you can imagine um, <laughs> it, yeah it's really good for yeah motivating yourself to be able to keep reading more I think it's a great way to also be able to recommend things to people it's just a really good resource to be able to you know there's no way you'd remember everything you've read if you're reading at quite a rate otherwise um and then it's it's also super useful for like it I don't know, it's like helps my memory almost. I've never kept mm. a diary or anything like that, but if I'll scroll back, I'll note when I finish the book and I'll see, oh, May twenty twelve, I was doing X. I, off the top of my head I can't remember, but if I'm looking at the spreadsheet, I'll remember where I was when I read that book. And it's just kind of a nice way to go, oh, I was on I was on holiday there and I did this. And it's it's like a nice jumping off point and it also helps me yeah, sort of contextualise what I'm reading or, yeah, remember my state of mind around certain times and things. So, yeah, so it serves a wider purpose, but purely just kind of, yeah, gamifying your ability to get more read. It's a good way to challenge yourself and measure measure what you're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely it, do it, it. It keeps you honest. And it's like this nice, like, as well as like a reference manual, It's you can actually assess your reading diet, as it were, like mm. very soberly and go oh i read a lot more fiction this year or i I didn't read i don't read much history or i don't read much about science you can kind of really see what you're disproportionately weighting definitely and i track um like nationality of the author and things like that so it's a good way to just keep an eye on if you're reading a lot of translated fiction or yeah plenty to be done with that it's maybe a little little lockdown project for people might be that to kind of start setting up a little spreadsheet with the things that read I do mine on Trello uh, if you want a recommendation, but many apps are available. Mm, lovely. Um, I have I have like three treble three Trello columns with books, films, and TV shows. Um, but yeah, um, I've got to go, George, because I'm having a little celebration tonight uh, for a family birthday. So oh, there you lovely. go. Many happy returns. Uh, not for me. <laughs> Um, uh, all right. Well, uh, I'll catch up with you soon. Chock full, chock full more podcasts to come. And, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll keep them piping. Um, yeah, everyone should just get yourself under the covers, get a fire lit, get a kettle on, fire in, fire in a couple of book orders and, uh, get, get reading. Yeah. Keep yourself cozy. Keep, keep, keep filling your noggin with goodness and we'll get through this winter. <laughs> One way or the other we'll be through the other side soon um all right mate i'll talk to you soon lovely stuff thanks steve bye everyone bye